Morning. Good to see you today. Good to see you. Good to see you who are joining us live stream as well. We want to say to everyone, welcome home. I know we have some guests today, and we're so glad to have you with us. Hey, Scott, put out these little wristbands. I don't know if you saw them, but feel free to pick one up. We can color code ourselves. And the green is for those who are, you know, hey, hug me, talk to me, I'm wide open. Red is on the opposite end of that spectrum, so keep away. And yellow is somewhere in between. Somebody was telling me they'd like to have one that they could flip. Depending on who's uh, approaching them, they could flip it from green to red. I thought that that was pretty good. We're going to be talking about honesty today. One of the more egregious examples of lying that I know of personally happened with my sister-in-law. She lives up in the Jacksonville area, and she is an emergency veterinarian. And so one day a man brought in a dog that had been injured by a car and asked her what she could do. She did the examination, and uh, she said, you know, I can perform surgery on the dog and save the dog's life, and it'll cost X. And the man said, I don't really want to spend that much money, and it's my wife's dog, so I'll tell you what, just, just put him to sleep. And he left, and after he left, uh, my sister-in-law was feeling sorry for the dog and bad for the family. So she decided to do the surgery anyway, no charge. She did the surgery, dog is good. She called the man on the phone and said, hey, I went ahead and did the surgery, there's no charge, you can come pick your dog up. There was a long pause, he said, well, I kind of have a problem. She said, what is it? He said, I already told my wife that the dog was killed at the scene of the accident. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to what? To deceive. And uh, just taking a step back, We've been in this sermon series called Obey Everything, taken from the Great Commission. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. So what we've been doing here since February is mining the gospel of Matthew, in particular, for the commands of Jesus that we can review and, and make sure that we are in obedience. And today is Jesus' commands about honesty. Now, I was looking at a book. It was written by a former CIA operative. She spent a 20-year career interrogating, questioning, polygraphing suspects. She wrote a book called Spy the Lie, and it's all about how to tell when people are, are lying. But in, in the book, she says, in her research, the average person, believe it or not, the average person lies an average of 10 times per day. I've always thought of this congregation as being above average in most ways, but may not, maybe hopefully not in this way. But I just bring that out to show, talking about honesty, I'm going to say, oh, honesty, no big deal. This is very relevant in our society and in our culture and certainly for us personally. So we're going to look at what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount about this, about being truthful and about being honest. I want to break it down basically into four headings. I'm going to just start with the baseline level of honesty. And the baseline level of honesty for all of us is that we keep our promises, right? We keep our promises. Matthew 5, Jesus says, you've also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows that you make to the Lord. Now, Jesus here is kind of summarizing a lot of what's taught in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses. And we could give several examples, but I'll give you two. Leviticus 19, 12. Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. 
So making a vow in the name of the Lord, we're to keep those, that vow. Here's another one, Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything that he said. So we're to keep our, basically keep our promises. Just pretty straightforward. I like what the psalmist wrote, Psalm 15, 4. Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? Those who keep their promises even when it hurts. Now, Booker T. Washington recognized that name. He was a slave. And he was able to, edu- he was edu- became educated and highly successful and, and influential. Booker T. Washington wrote a book entitled Up From Slavery. And he writes about a slave that he had encountered. And here's what he says. I found that this man had made a contract with his master two or three years previous to the Emancipation Proclamation to the effect that the slave was to be permitted to buy himself by paying so much per year for his body. And while he was paying for himself, he was to be permitted to labor where and for whom he pleased. Finding that he could secure better wages in Ohio, he went there. And when freedom came, he was still in debt to his master for some $300. Notwithstanding that the Emancipation Proclamation freed him from any obligation to his master, this man walked the greater portion of the distance back to where his old master lived in Virginia and placed the last dollar with interest in his hand. In talking to me about this, the man told me that he knew that he did not have to pay his debt, but that he had given his word to his master, and his word he had never broken. He felt that he could not enjoy his freedom till he had fulfilled his promise, end quote. The psalmist says, those who keep their promises even when it hurts. A few years ago, Francis Hesselbein I don't know if anybody recognizes that name, Frances Hesselbein. She was the CEO of the Girl Scouts in America. And after she retired from that, she went on to run her own company. But Frances Hesselbein had made an, an engagement to speak for a charity event in Denver, Colorado. After she had made that engagement, she received an invitation from the White House to have lunch with the president which would be no problem for most of us. Most of us would contact Denver, say, hey, I've got another engagement, going to have to reschedule. But Frances Hesselbein went in the opposite direction, and she told the White House, sorry, I can't come. I have a previous engagement because she gave her word, and she did not want to break her word. And the cherry on top is that she kept that engagement in Denver and never even told them that she had had an invitation from the White House For the same date. Those who keep their promises, even when it hurts. Baseline level of honesty, we keep our promises. All right, let's take it up another level. Jesus is always always raising the bar. Next level honesty, eschewing deceptive word games. Eschewing deceptive word games. Jesus continues. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say, by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. Do not say, by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. Do not say, by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say, by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. 
Now, what was the problem? Well, the problem, as is so often the case, was with the lawyers. The lawyers during Jesus' day, the Pharisees. They were legalists, and they were playing with the words here. As we've seen previously, as we've been studying through the Sermon on the Mount, same thing the Pharisees were doing, for instance, with murder versus anger, with adultery versus lust, with divorcing for any reason. What they were trying to do was figure out a way wherein they could follow the letter of the law, even though they were breaking the spirit of the law. So as we've seen from a couple of examples from the Old Testament, you're not to make a vow in the name of the Lord and break that vow. So the Pharisees would try to think up different oaths and vows that they could make, which sounded very religious and binding, but didn't technically call on the name of the Lord. So a Pharisee might say, now I swear by heaven what I'm saying is true. In the Pharisee's mind, because he had not spoken the name of the Lord, he was free to break that oath and still technically be in compliance with the law, you know, in his own mind. Or I swear by the earth, or I swear by Jerusalem. And Jesus addresses that, and he says, he's not having any of it. He's not having any of it. These weasel words, these deceptive word games. He points out, you cannot use your words to compartmentalize your life to that degree. You can't keep God out of the equation just by not calling on his name. God is in it. He's in it whether you're talking about heaven, he's in heaven. Talking about Jerusalem, the city of the great king. Whether you're talking about earth and God made the earth. Whether you're even talking about yourself, God is in control of us. God is in and through every aspect of our lives. He's always watching and we are to keep our words and not play word games. So no, don't take any oaths at all. You know, when you think about it, ironically, taking an oath, using something else to say, this is, this is me speaking the truth, really undermines the truth. Why, why are oaths even necessary? Because people don't always tell the truth. If people always told the truth all the time, an oath would never even be necessary. We've, we've all experienced this. The best probably, I was thinking the best correlation, modern day correlation to Pharisees are children. Children are such legalists. You dealt with children lately? I mean, remember what it was like when you were a kid and you're trying to get your friends to believe you? Oh, I promise this is true. Cross my heart and hope to what? Die. Stick a needle in my eye. I swear on a stack of what? Bibles. I swear on my mother's what? Grave. We all did it. Why do we have to do that? Because we were little liar, liar, pants on fire. We lied to our friends 10 times a day at least and probably more often. So we're trying to get them to believe us. Well, we make all these oaths and promises. I got a bunch of little grandkids and we're all in each other's business. And one of the grandkids the other day, uh, I saw him, he was talking to his cousin and uh, he said something. And afterwards he came over to me and said, Papa, I had my fingers crossed behind my back. You know, we come up, we come up with all these kinds of things, and, and Jesus just says, don't, don't do the weasel words, don't play the word games. You know, that, that's the next level of honesty where you don't need an, an oath at all. Just don't, don't use oaths at all. Okay, so we got that. So we got, always keep your promises. Secondly, don't play the word games. 
Now let's go probably to the highest level of honesty. Highest level of honesty is simple integrity. Okay, simple integrity. Verse 37, Jesus says, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Okay, so we always mean what we say. We say yes, we mean that. We say no, we mean that. You're a woman of your word. You're a man of your word. You don't need any kind of an oath at all. Stephen Covey and and the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He writes, trust is the glue of life. Isn't that true? In our our marriages, in our families, in our relationships with our friends and in business, trust is the glue of life. He continues, it's the most essential ingredient in effective communication. It's the foundational principle that holds all relationships. And that is true of and starts with our relationship with God and continues with all of our other relationships. Let me give you the longer quote here from Covey. He says, if I try to use human influence strategies, tactics of how to get other people to do what I want, to work better, to be more motivated, to like me and each other, while my character is fundamentally flawed, marked by duplicity and insincerity, then in the long run, I cannot be successful. My duplicity will breed distrust. And everything I do, even using so-called good human relations techniques, will be perceived as manipulative. It simply makes no difference how good the rhetoric is or even how good the intentions are. If there is little or no trust, there is no foundation for permanent success. Only basic goodness gives life to technique. Now, he's talking here about character over symbolism and substance. It's our character. I don't know if anybody's ever read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, or maybe took a a Dale Carnegie course, or maybe has had some sales training, but if you have, then you know, for instance, you know some human relations techniques, what, what Covey is talking about, techniques like learning people's names and using people's names. Now, the sweetest sound to any person's ear is the sound of their own name. We all like to hear our names. And in sales training, and I've been through sales training, and I've read those books, they teach you to, when you first meet a person, you want to use their name in a conversation as often as you can. Because, number one, it helps you to remember their name, and that's good. People like to be called by name. And number two, they like to hear their name. I was talking with a, I was over in a salesperson's office the other day, and we were talking about maybe having some business done in my house, and she must have used my name seven times in five minutes. And I thought, this person's been through some training. And frankly, I liked it. Even though I knew it, maybe I'm being a little manipulated here, I like to hear my own name. Now, I know all, I learned those techniques. You use people's names, you make eye contact, you maybe touch them on the shoulder, you ask, you ask about them and what they're interested in. People like to talk about themselves. You show interest in their interest. No, those are techniques. Now, there's nothing wrong in and of itself with using human relationship techniques. It can be very effective. It can be an expression of love, frankly. Jesus said he's the good shepherd. He knows his sheep by name. Nothing wrong in and of itself. But what Covey is saying, and I think he's right about this, 
if we if we're using those types of things to manipulate people if we don't really love them if there is a character flaw if we're not who we really say we are we're not genuine and authentic what he is saying is that's going to come through eventually that's going to come through you cannot hide that john maxwell says we teach what we know but we communicate what we are we communicate what we are William George Jordan writes, Into the hands of every individual is given a marvelous power for good or evil. The silent, unconscious, unseen influence of his life. This is simply the constant radiation of what a person really is, not what they pretend to be. So the character has to be there. Character has to be there. So this is this is highest level of honesty, integrity. And then the, finally, the last thing I want to say, and I that taken from what Jesus says about honesty here, the opposite of honesty. The opposite of honesty is satanic. It's satanic. Latter part of verse 37. Jesus continues. Anything beyond this, beyond what? Yes is yes, no is no. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Satan is the father of lies. Here's what Jesus said about Satan in John 8, 44. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, what's your primary language? Probably for most of us here, it's English. Maybe, maybe for some it might be Spanish. You know, there could be the German or French or Creole. Whatever, that's your primary language. That's your first language. The primary language for Satan is deception. That's his first language, his primary language. It's his go-to tool and weapon that he uses against God and the children of God. Deception, the lie. Remember the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve, and they're they're doing fine. They're in the Garden of Eden. When Satan in the form of the serpent approaches, and the first words out of his mouth was a lie in the form of a question. And he asked Eve, he said, Now did God say that you cannot eat from any of the trees in the garden? That's not what God said, was it? And Eve even responded, said, no, God said we can eat from any of the trees in the garden. We just can't eat from the one over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that was interesting. First words out of Satan's mouth was a lie in the form of a question. And she said, we, can eat from that, we can't eat from that tree or we will die. Second statement that Satan made, you surely will not die. God just knows that if you eat of it, you'll be like him. And what Satan was doing was trying to erode the trust. Remember, trust is the glue of all relationships. She's trying to, he's trying to erode the trust between Eve and God. So now Eve begins to wonder, huh, I wonder if God's not being honest with me. I wonder if, if I follow God's way, including God's restrictions, I'm going to be missing out on something, and God knows that. Maybe I should take matters into my own hands. And that's what she did. And they paid the price, dreadful consequences, and we've been paying the price ever since. And look what happened as a result. Now, we're still talking about deception and the lie, the opposite of honesty being satanic, is they felt shame for the first time in their lives. And shame is a tool of Satan. They felt shame, and so they hid themselves from God. When God comes walking in the garden, 
the cool of the day, as apparently was his practice, to spend the time fellowshipping with Adam and Eve. They were hiding for the first time. And God says, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? He knew where they were geographically. <laughs> well, where are you? Why aren't you out here walking with me? What happened to the fellowship that we had? What happened to our love? What happened to our friendship? Where are you? And Adam said, well, we realized we were naked and we were ashamed. and We hid ourselves. Shame is a tool of Satan. So what happens when we're not honest? We don't have basic integrity. That is, our character is integrated with our words and how we're presenting ourselves. We feel shame. Shame breaks a relationship, and we try to hide ourselves from God and from others. If God really knew me, who I was at my core and what I have done, he would not love me. If people really knew the real me, we think, they would not love me. When God showed to Adam and Eve, he knew them and he knew what they had done. And even though there were consequences, he made a way, of course, through Christ, he made a way that the relationship could be restored and they did not have to be ashamed. In fact, Jesus took all that shame upon him on the cross. The Bible tells us how to deal with shame. Folks, I'm talking about one final thing here, one final application about honesty. And that is that we be honest with ourselves and honest with God about who and what we are and what we've done, and even honest with others. The Bible teaches us to confess our sin to God. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just and will cleanse us from our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, forgive us. And the Bible also tells us to confess our sin to others. And you know what? The neurobiology is catching up with the Word of God and teaches us the one, there's only one way to deal with shame, and that's to bring it out into the light to bring it out into the open, and then God can begin to heal us. I read a book recently called The Soul of Shame. It's written by a Christian who's a psychologist and a medical doctor. And he goes into, now we know spiritually that confessing and living with integrity is good for us spiritually. He goes into kind of the, the medical side of it. What happens to us neurobiologically when we get into a group of trusted friends, maybe it's a life group, or maybe talking to a minister or an elder or another Christian friend that we trust, and we let people know who we are and our real selves, what happens to us. Let me read you, this will be our last quote here and the last word in the message. It's kind of a long quote, so work a little harder to stay with me on this. I think it'll be worth it. He writes in The Soul of Shame, quote, When one member of a group formed with the intention of providing a context for healing risks revealing the vulnerable, broken, and especially shameful parts of his or her story, a number of interpersonal neurobiological events are put in motion. First, it takes great courage to share something shameful. We see it in the person's face and body language, and we have all been there. But almost immediately, we also witness a visible softening in the listener's bodies leaning forward in their seats toward the speaker, looks of compassion on their faces, kindness in their voices as they respond. And as they do so, the speaker's own neurophysiologic state begins to change as his or her brain feels felt by the others. And with this comes less anxiety. Furthermore, having taken this risk, the person feels less alone in the story. For telling it now includes awareness of others, emotional acceptance of what is being felt. 
This is not equated with acceptance of bad behavior, merely the validation of the feeling that accompanies it. There are a lot of people who are dealing with shame in their life who wish that they could unburden themselves to someone somewhere. I'd encourage you to do that. As someone who has done that myself, I encourage you to do that, whether that's to a minister, a pastor, an elder, fellow Christian, and a life group. Biblically, scientifically, that is the only way, there is no other way to neutralize the weapon of shame that God that Satan wants to use in our lives when we are not living with integrity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer finally says, the cross is God's truth about us, and therefore it is the only power that can make us truthful. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, God, that you have been honest with us. You've told us the truth. You've told us the truth about sin and righteousness, about ourselves and what we need for salvation. We know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Satan is the father of the lie. You are the father of truth. And it's only the truth that sets us free. We thank you for Jesus, our truth. In Jesus' name, amen.